I, I do want to return to the text that we began to look at uh, last time, uh, but I want to read a little bit further into the text, uh, reading uh, verses 3 through 11. We looked at 3 through 7 last time. I, I want to uh, also look at those same verses, but expand uh, to really the end of the section, verse 11. And so I invite you to follow along in uh, your Bibles as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. I'm uh, pretty sure all of you here know the state song of Kansas. The chorus is, Home, home on the range, where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. Boy, sounds like Kansas is a great place to live. In fact, you know what? I was thinking we should all maybe plan to move there. Because to live in a place where there's no discouragement, where, well, seldom, I mean, not never, but the song says seldom, that'd be great. And the skies, why, they're always sunny. There are never storms in life. Uh, there's never hail. There are never tornadoes. The skies are not cloudy all day. Let's move to Kansas. But you know better than that. I know better than that. You and I, no matter where we are, no matter where we go, we cannot escape from afflictions and trials and discouragement and distress and tears. There are a lot of facets of affliction in life. Last time I highlighted uh, some of the most difficult and dramatic. But there are a lot of things that bring discouragement. There are a lot of things that bring deep distress into our lives. Can be things like personal failures to one degree or another. Personal limitations. Uh, it can be severe or even terminal illness for oneself or a family member. It can be uh, various family circumstances and distresses, some of them perhaps seemingly insoluble. It can be great loss of whatever kind that might be. It can be tragedy. 
Uh, it can involve the words and the attitudes and the actions of other people. Even sometimes events in our community, in our country, in our world are distressing. Are they not in these days for all of us? Thinking of inflation and gas prices and all of these things, that, that brings distress and disturbance, even those sorts of things. Uh, it can be the most heart-wrenching of experiences in life. Well, in the face of all of those afflictions from A to Z, all the trials and tears and distresses of life, what do we do? You recall that as we began to look at this text last time, I drew your attention particularly to verse 3 and the first half of verse 4, where Paul says, in the midst of your afflictions and trials and distresses, focus on God. And you notice, first of all, focus on who God is. You notice that in verse 3. How does Paul describe God, the name of God, if you will? Here's how he describes him in the context of this passage. He is the Father of mercies and the God of, don't miss the little word, all, and the God of all comfort. So you start with who is God? Who is this God that we worship? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You start there. He is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who does what? Well, what he does is infinite. But particularly in this passage, start of verse 4, he comforts us in all. Don't miss the word all again. He comforts us, he strengthens us in all our afflictions. Verse 3 and the first half of verse 4 is the foundation for this whole text, for this whole passage. That's where you start. You start with the character of God, his mercy and his comfort, which comes our way. So then what does that mean? Let's notice several things about God's presence in the midst of our afflictions. The, the first thing I want to bring to your attention is really in the remainder of verse 4, and that is that God does comfort us. He's the God of all mercies. He's the God of comfort. All right, And he comforts us in our afflictions, in our sufferings, so that what? we in turn might effectively comfort others who are going through the same thing. Do you notice verse 4? He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may. Don't miss the so that. Here's the reason. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul makes the point, when you and I receive comfort in the midst of trouble, it's not to terminate with us. Oh, good. I'm doing better now. That's great. And I move on in life. The comfort of God is not to terminate with you. The comfort of God, as you receive it, it's not so that you might feel better and put a period at the end of the sentence. It's not so that you might be comfortable. God comforts you so that you might be a comforter in turn to others. Do you see the purpose behind some of the trials that you go through? Some, we don't see it when we're in the middle of it, do we? But God brings us through times of trial so that we can be his instrument for health and healing in the lives of others who are going through the same thing that we've just walked through. Don't miss that in the text. 
And and the truth that lies behind Paul's words in verse 4 is that if we are joined to Christ by faith, that's what it means to be a Christian, not an intellectual agreement with things, but by faith we are joined to Christ and every other believer also joined to Christ, so we are together as one in Christ. The Bible makes that clear. We are bound together with every other true believer in Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of images in the New Testament for what that looks like. We are one body in Christ. Paul uses that analogy. We are living stones. Peter uses this one. Joined together in a holy temple being built up for the glory of God. We are sheep of the same flock. That's the way Jesus puts it. We are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul says that to the Philippians. We are family. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. And and what you need to understand is that God has designed us for community. Which means the Christian faith is never an individualistic thing. It is personal, personal faith in the Lord, but it doesn't become, if it's the right kind of Christianity, individualistic. The Christian faith is not show up at church and go your way. That's not what the church is meant to be. That's not how it's designed. Church is meant to be a community where people love one another, serve one another, care for one another, help one another, pray for one another, get involved in helpful ways in the circumstances and needs of others. The church is to be that kind of a community where vital relationships are established and where those relationships are nurtured. Which means, by the way, that those who are disconnected from a church community, or those who are on the fringes, yeah, my name's on the roll and I kind of come, those kinds of folks are vulnerable to being swept away by trials and discouragement. I've seen it many times over the years. And, And not only vulnerable to being swept away, but when you're not part and parcel and heart and center of a congregation... That lack of community cuts you off from God's ways of helping you. I I sometimes find people in distress, and they've got no church family. They've got no church connections. Nobody cares about me. Well, you're not involved in anybody's life, and they're not in yours. You're going your own way, and then distress comes, and you wonder what you're supposed to do. You have nobody to turn to, nobody to rely on. What what the point that, that Paul is making here is God's comfort doesn't come to you out of the blue. But it comes to you, here is God's pattern and plan, it comes to you through brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside of you in your time of need. And what I have observed over the years, and I could tell some dramatic stories, I didn't get permission to tell them, so I'm not going to. But what I have observed over the years is the best comforters in times of distress are those who've gone through exactly the same thing first. For example, the parent who has lost a child can be the most effective comforter in ministering to another parent who's lost a child. I've seen that one more than once. The person who's gone through bankruptcy can comfort others facing financial disaster. The person who has experienced the debilitating effects of depression and has found victory, maybe they still struggle somewhat, but they found the help and victory of the Lord, can comfort others facing that similar affliction. 
the person who has battled substance abuse and has found victory through Christ can come alongside another who's battling an addiction of one kind or another. I have found those kinds of comforters. Well, let the pastor show up. No, those folks do a lot better job than I do because they've been through it. They talk from experience. The person who has experienced a loved one struck down by a chronic or a serious illness is the best comforter for someone who also is experiencing the same thing in their lives, in their family. God comforts us. He strengthens us so that he might, in his will, use us in turn to make a glorious, wonderful difference in somebody else's life. Has the Lord used you in that way? Have you experienced that yourself? Or somebody, when you've been struggling, somebody's come alongside and says, I know where you're at. I've been there. What help that gives? What encouragement that gives? So God is at work in affliction. Something else, number two, we saw this in our reading in James, but Paul makes the point here. God has important lessons for us to learn in suffering. And we're going to see what one of the main lessons is in a moment. Because Paul says, I had to relearn the lesson myself. But before we get there, notice how Paul describes his own time of trial. See if you can identify with his description here. It starts in verse 8. He speaks about something that occurred in the Roman province of Asia. When, when you hear the New Testament speaking about Asia, don't think about South Korea or China or Japan. It's actually a Roman province that was in what is today modern Turkey. And so Paul says, I don't want you Corinthians to be unaware of the serious affliction we experienced in the province of Asia. The, the capital, by the way, of Asia was Ephesus, uh, where Paul, of course, wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what the affliction was. There, there have been a lot of proposals and guesses as to what the affliction was over the years. Uh, some believe it was a severe, unprecedented persecution that Paul almost didn't survive. Uh, along that same line, mob violence. Some have advocated that's what he experienced, where in one of the cities, one of the places, a riot broke out. He just barely escaped with his life. That perhaps could be so. Maybe it was a serious accident of some kind. Paul will talk about the dangers he experienced later in the letter, even while he traveled. Uh, it could be deep anxiety. It could be psychological stress that was overwhelming for him. Uh, my own view of all the good possibilities is that it was severe illness. Uh, and I tie that in with what Paul, in the end of the book, talks about his thorn in the flesh that he prayed for the Lord to remove, but God says, I'm going to give my grace instead to strengthen you through it. Well, whatever it was, I want you to notice something interesting, because this might correct some of your theology this morning. You notice in verse 8 how Paul describes his trial. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Did you ever hear the old bromide, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle? That's a lie. That's false. We say that, meaning the best. Uh, we say that to try to encourage somebody, or somebody says that to us, you know, don't forget, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. What does Paul say? God gave me more than I could handle. I mean, that's what the text says here in this passage. Um, and, and in fact, Paul says, 
we were burdened beyond our strength. That's more than you can handle, I would say. That we despaired of life itself. And feeling, Paul goes on to say, like we received a death sentence. So Paul has more than he can handle. The trial is bigger. He's not going to survive it. He's not going to make his way through it. He's over his head physically, and he's over his head emotionally. So why does God allow or bring us to the place in our lives where the trials are more than we can carry? Notice the text. Paul tells us very clearly, and here's the lesson that he learned. He says, but this, middle of verse 9, so why did we despair of life? Why were we utterly burdened beyond our strength? But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. By nature, all of us are arrogant, prideful, self-centered, I-can-do-it-myself kinds of people. That's who we are. And as life goes on smoothly, we become more self-reliant. No matter what our theology on paper is, we become self-reliant. I can handle it. I can figure it out. I can make my way through it. I have the solution. I have the answer. We are finite. We are frail. We are totally dependent on God, but we don't live many times in that reality. I don't. You don't. And so what does God do? He brings us into circumstances that are more than we can handle. He brings us into circumstances that are beyond our ability to deal with. He removes all those props that we've been leaning on. All those things where our comfort and our hope rested. He brings us to our knees and he destroys our self-confidence. That's what Paul says God did for me. He destroys our self-confidence so that, again, our heart and our focus and our life is re-centered on God and His glory and His strength and not on our own wisdom or cleverness or resources. And then what? Notice what Paul says. So God did this. He brought me to the place where I was burdened, utterly burdened, beyond my strength to handle it. But he did this so that we do not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God raises the dead, then, as it were. So when you go through a trial, it's greater than you are. And God brings you through it miraculously, providentially, wonderfully. It's like new life. It's like you've been raised from the grave. Paul had that kind of sense. He imparts new life. He strengthens your faith. He teaches you to, to trust him again in a new way. He changes you in significant ways for his glory. That's what the passage in James said. Stories told about Ernest Hemingway. Uh, I've enjoyed reading uh, some of his uh, novels over the years. He's a brilliant uh, American author known for his very economical and understated style of writing. The story's told of when he was living in uh, Paris in the 1920s. Uh, he was having lunch one day at a hotel with some friends. And in the course of the conversation, somebody in the group, and they all joined in, they bet him $10 that he couldn't come up with a short story that was only six words long. Hemingway took them up on their bet. And on a piece of paper, he wrote this six-word short story. I'll read it for you. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. 
Many of us have our own six-word stories, don't we? Here's one. The test is positive. It's cancer. Or how about this one? I'm leaving. The marriage is over. Or how about this one? Sorry, your job has been eliminated. Or this one, there has been a terrible accident. Or this one, here's a rose off the casket. What is your six-word story? Is it going to destroy you? Is it going to mark your life so you can never get past it? Is it going to imprison you? Or will you, with Paul, set your hopes on the one who raises the dead? That's what he encourages in this text. And so the question is, when you experience trials greater than you can bear, let's be honest, we come to that point. We tell ourselves, God never gives me more than I can bear. No, he does. He gives you more than you can bear. And when you experience that, do you believe God is for you or against you? How do you look at God in the midst of that? In the midst of trials, can you trust his plan when you can't see beyond the immediate circumstances, when the pain and the fear is closing in? Can you say, by faith and with confidence, God has delivered me in the past, I trust him to do the same again, I cast my life upon him? Can you answer the questions in that way? You think about the saints of old how they answered those questions. Ask Abraham on Mount Moriah with the knife in his hand raised over his son. Ask Daniel when he was ready to be thrown into the den of lions. Ask um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were being carried up the ladders to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Beyond all those great saints, ask Jesus who threw himself on the ground in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, Father, if it's possible... Take this cup from me. God has important lessons for us to learn in the midst of afflictions and trials and sufferings. And that leads me to the end of the passage, down to verse 11, the last verse of our text. God calls us to pray for those who are in the midst of sufferings, trials, afflictions, tough times. Notice what Paul says in verse 11, the first half of the verse. You also must help us by prayer. God had delivered him from his most recent affliction in Asia, whatever it was. He doesn't define it, obviously. But God had delivered him from this great trial, but more lay ahead. Paul knew that. There had been many in the past. This was the most recent. More to come. And so Paul asks for prayer. And I want you to notice in verse 10 his confidence in God. I want you to notice he uses the word, uh, the verb deliver three times in verse 10. You notice the first one, it's in the past tense. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He's talking about whatever happened in Asia in verse 8. So he delivered us from this deadly peril that was beyond our strength to bear. And he will deliver us. Notice the future tense. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
God has delivered, and on that basis, I know with confidence he will deliver me again whatever trials come. Therefore, verse 11, be in prayer for me, because trials are on the way. So I ask all of you, Paul says to the Corinthians, to pray for me. One of the ways that you and I can minister to others, one of the significant ways by which you and I can comfort others, strengthen others, is by means of prayer. So therefore, how important it is for us to let our needs be known. So that many people, then, can join together in various requests before the throne of mercy. And again, I can tell you from personal experience that I have been encouraged and strengthened and comforted and delivered because of others over many years in many circumstances praying for me. Prayer is that vital. But over the years, I've heard uh, conversations sometimes between Christians when somebody's facing a significant unknown. Uh, Conversation I overheard here out in the lobby some years ago. I'm not going to even try to define the year for you. But this is the conversation I overheard among Christian people. Somebody is going to be going in for medical tests, the person said, for the week to come. And the other person said in response, well, good luck. I'll be thinking about you. And I thought to myself, really? Is that all you got to offer? If you wish somebody good luck, that means nobody's in charge. That everything in life is arbitrary, everything is happenstance, everything is a roll of the dice. So, as your tests come, I hope that when whoever shakes the dice, they come out in your favor. Good luck to you. And then I'll be thinking about you. What good is that? What good is that? I mean, by itself, what good is that? A person doesn't need your wishes of good luck, doesn't need, I got my thoughts are going with you. That person needs your prayers because there's somebody who can do something, and it's not you. That person needs your prayers to the Lord. And so Paul encourages, you notice he encourages you also, you plural, verse 11. He's talking to the whole congregation. You must help us by prayer. The more that pray, Paul says the better. But the reason for that is not what you and I might think. Because sometimes we think, you know what, if two people are praying, yeah, God listens. But boy, if we could get 60 people praying, boy, that prayer would like take critical mass and, you know, it just bombard the throne of grace and mercy and God would really listen. I mean, it's great that two people pray, but what if 60, what if 200 prayed? God would be sure and listen to it then. That's false theology. It's not prayers gather critical mass as more and more and more pray. Because you notice what Paul says in this text. Why does he encourage more people to pray about the same request? Notice the so that in verse 11. You also, the whole congregation, must help us by prayer so that God will be sure and hear the more of you that pray. It's not what it says, does it? So that... Many will give thanks on our behalf. Let me paraphrase the rest. So when the prayer is answered, all those that knew about the request all lift their praises to God and God is glorified. That's the reason for more people praying. And so when 
prayer is answered and different folks have been praying, it's not that, you know, 20 prayed, so therefore finally we cross the line where God, you know, listens a little bit more. If 20 people know about it, if 40 people know about it, and the prayer is answered, everybody in his or her own way says, God, be praised, glory to you. Thank you for your marvelous answer and intervention. God receives glory, worship, praise, adoration, and thanksgiving as more people pray. And so we are called to pray for people in affliction. And how do we usually pray? I was thinking about how do I usually pray? Lord, if it's me, get me out of it as quick as possible. Or if it's somebody else, Lord, get that person out of it as quick as possible. That's kind of the default way I pray, I think probably for a lot of you as well. But God is sovereign over all things. And for his own purposes in his own way, the answer isn't always immediately as we might expect. But the afflictions that we undergo, they're never wasted, they're never arbitrary, they're never pointless. But that in all of them, those things can be powerful forces for good in our own lives and the lives of others. Spiritual growth, and I can testify from experience this is true, spiritual growth takes place best in affliction. Afflictions push us closer to God. I can testify from experience that is so also. And when we enter into the afflictions of others, there is a beautiful heart-to-heart bond that is created that I can't put into words and explain to you. But there is fellowship and oneness that is forged as we enter into one another's burdens and bear them and share them together. And so may it be for each one of us, and maybe for some of you this morning going through an affliction, that when those afflictions sweep over us, as they surely will, if you're not in the midst of a serious one now, you will be. That's not bad news, that's just reality, isn't it? When those afflictions come as they surely will, when they sweep over us, may we not become bitter, resentful, angry, but that whatever happens may our ultimate prayer be, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, um, I wish there were some way we could learn these lessons easier than by trials. But none of us learn them when everything's sunny and bright and clear and road smooth and finances are in order, health is in order, everything in our family's great, job's going well. We really don't learn a whole lot when that's the case. But when troubles come, when circumstances come, thank you, Lord, that there are always good purposes you have in the midst of them all. There are lessons you have for us in the midst of it all. And if we will allow your Holy Spirit to work it, we will come out a more joyful, positive, winsome, strong Christian than when we went into the trials. So, Lord, uh, I pray for each one here today, whatever his or her affliction or trial or uncertainty. Lord, may that person find comfort through you, that comfort which comes through other believers whereas we share our needs, then that one comes alongside. How can I pray? How can I help? What do you need? Lord, how beautiful a thing it is when we see believers ministering your grace in real ways 
into the lives of others. May we be those kinds of people in the church. May we be on the lookout for those that we can encourage and help and pray for and walk with through times of trial. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture, which teaches us indeed that you are the Father of mercies and you are the God of all comfort. Praise be unto you, O Lord, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.